Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. And if you're wondering why we called this the Poker Zoo, well, frankly, when we named it early on, I thought it was temporary until we figured out if the show would take off, then we would change it to something very catchy, cool, and uh, descriptive of what the show's about. But now, every time I bring up changing the name, everyone seems to like the zoo. And search engine rankings have us up at the top, so how can you change it now? But we did start as a diverse group of current and former Persuadio students on the Skype channel that uh, started as the Poker League. The name changes two or three times a week, but always gets back to the zoo because trying to keep this group of misfits on task is a lot like herding cats. So, in a way, the zoo kind of fits. You can find us at Persuadio.nl or simply do a Google search for the Poker Zoo. Each of the episodes are there in an individual blog post with a section underneath for your comments, questions, uh, things you would like to see on the show, and a place to subscribe on iTunes, Android device, whatever podcast aggregator you might use. Speaking of the zoo, one of my friends saw me reading some of the poker strategy discussion this week and said, you're never going to learn anything reading about poker. They always keep the good stuff to themselves and just feed you tidbits and scraps. So as you listen to the interview this week, try to listen between the lines and figure out the good stuff that they're trying to keep to themselves. Welcome back this week to the zoo. This is Chris, a.k.a. Persuadio. And I have a guest I've been wanting to talk to you to for a long time. Uh, we're not going to give you his last name. We'll just introduce him as Steve. Steve, how are you? Doing fine, Chris. How are you? H- how did we meet? Remind me. <laughs> Should have put that in your notes. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Putting you on the spot. No, I think we, uh, we met Probably through, through Red Chip somehow. Yeah, through Red Chip. And I don't, I don't think you, you've been there recently. But one of the reasons I, I'm wanting to talk to you, and we'll find out more about Steve in just a second, is from what I've observed, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think I am, you're something of a, a serious lurker of poker education. You've been all around the sites, and you've taken bits and pieces from all over. Is that true? Uh, all except the taken bits and pieces. But yeah, I probably am the... Uh... The most studied beginner you've uh, talked to. That's awesome, because I want to hear uh, your thoughts on on all of that. And also, Steve is uh, has some very interesting views on just poker culture and, and what's going on in general. But uh, let's back up and uh, tell the audience who you are and uh, wh- why do you play this strange game? Validation, probably. I think like a lot of people, they, they want to seem somehow the well, no, I wouldn't say a lot of people. For myself, put it that way. I know I suck at chess compared to people that really play well. And I used to play chess a long time ago, way back when, and wanted to be competitive at it. And for most of the parts, um, if I can't do something well, I don't want to do it at all. And I enjoy poker too much to give up on it. So, still playing. But why poker? What What about poker gives you validation? Well, I'm probably insecure. <laughs> you know? I don't know. I mean, like, I think if you're... Average intelligent or above, average intelligence or above. And it doesn't have to be necessarily like book learning IQ. I think there's a lot of different ways of being smart. But I mean, like when I come to, uh, I play in Texas. Uh, Well, I I play in Oklahoma, but I I live in Texas. So I'm living in the Dallas area. I drive up to Windstar. And you can see some, I don't know, some rednecks slash farmers slash, you wouldn't think of them as intellectuals. I mean, you're not going to find them at National Harbor in Washington because they don't have any reason to be there. They're still really good at, reading people and doing whatever. And I think a lot of people play not just for the money. 
So when I'm probably in that category. That's a good reason to play. That'll keep you in the game. Yeah. yeah. You know, people who do it for the money, they, they come and go, unless it's just so good they can't leave, I suppose. Well, it's kind of weird. You know, it's like I used to be on Deuces Cracked a long time ago. Uh, of course, Deuces Cracked, I don't, I don't even know if they exist anymore. But uh, so these guys were giving advice, you know, and I'm like, well, you know, I'm not the typical whatever customer. And, and so what, it, and it's weird how like at a poker table, you're supposed to think in terms of what other people are thinking. You're supposed to be able to put yourself in their shoes, like what's their strategy? What are they trying to do? And then that gives you your potential alternatives, you know, because if you can't read them, then you really do need to get good at GTO. And I found it kind of older, so I found I was pretty obtuse when it comes to people. And so I have no social skills. <laughs> so I thought GTO would be great. But <laughs> I'm on deuces cracked, and these people are giving me this, oh, you should do this, you should do that. And, uh, and I'm like, so what would you suggest to someone who's playing two cent back then, two cent, five cent online, and spending hundreds a month for coaching? Okay, yeah, I like this scenario. This is a... I mean, you, you're joking around a little bit, but it's real, right? People are playing for pennies, and they want to uh, they want to get better. And so you, someone says, "Well, you know, buy the the upswing course for fifty dollars a month, which is your whole bankroll." But it's, it's better than that. I'm listening to your previous podcast, Chris K. I think, and he said, "I don't know why different details stick with me, but he said he spent he, he talks to Christian Soto, becomes a friend, and spends seventeen thousand dollars on coaching." Chris, if you're listening, I'm willing to be your friend. <laughs> I mean, you I'm know, not saying he did it with Christian Soto, and I'm not saying that's the reason why. I mean, it's kind of a, a, I'm just teasing. But it is, I think, interesting to see the different trade-offs where, like, maybe two months ago, you were talking how silly people are to not being willing to spend 10 bucks a month, and they're grinding full-time. Oh, absolutely. I, I don't think, there's so much to talk about with a guy like Steve. He's He is experienced. And I'll, I'll back up for one thing, though. If you're an old guy, you're supposed to know people. You're supposed to know people, buddy, and read their souls. So what's wrong with you there? Let's see. Money and education and poker. Well, Berkey was just on the, the, the vlog cast, right? All of this sort of connects back to him in a way. Because, yeah, I think that Chris K has put a lot of money into his career. And they have, you know, those are premium prices. Hopefully he gets a premium result. And, yeah, I do laugh at people who... Who won't spend a little money? Yeah. It's seven, you know, it's seventeen thousand, you know, more than most. I admit it probably is. At least in the short term. Yeah, I mean, it's about excellence, right? If I have a real dream of playing poker and being the best, which I think Chris K, you know, does. I think when he goes home, he says, like, I'm the best. I just need to realize that. I don't think that him spending money is is a problem. Mm -hmm. What did the guys back at Deuces Crack say to you? Well, I mean, I think the the whole idea was they couldn't understand someone who's willing to pay for coaching that would be at a two cent, five cent game. And and part of it, I'm sure, is they can't understand why I'm still playing two cent, five cent if I'm getting reasonable coaching. Like I should probably fire the coach, right? Or go shoot myself according to every internet troll. <laughs> oh my gosh, there's those people too. You gave us the answer. You play because you love the game. You don't play because you're trying to pay off uh, the rent that mom's charges you to live in her basement. I think part of it, too, is like I went through backgammon. It was a huge, huge phase, you know, where like you couldn't go into a club hardly without having a board around somewhere. And I'm, I'm talking about like real clubs, like, you know, bars, you know, and, and girls and drinks and everything. And people were playing a lot. And then um, it got like it kind of exploded. It got real popular, at least in my awareness. 
And then it just crashed and burned. And what's funny was uh, Snowy, just plain Snowy, was the first software for backgammon that I was aware of that had a really cool interface that was usable. And it kind of just opened a lot of people's eyes as to what the correct strategy was. And the games became a lot, uh, the correct way to play became known. And it was like absolutely known. It's a, it's a game of perfect information. And there's only 36 rolls on a dice. So it was interesting to see how that, you know, how it played out. And people would play online. And if you were too close to a zero error rate, according to Snowy, they would ban you because they just assumed you were cheating. Oh, wow. I mean, you could input the, the positions that quickly. So it was kind of funny when I see this sort of whole thing play out online. You know, Chris Moneymaker wins. It goes online poker. I'm around. And I was playing poker because the, the bad part about backgammon is you have to have someone who's willing to play. Poker is as long as there's an empty seat. Except nowadays, I guess there's the private games inside the casinos that people are complaining about. By the way, how do you feel about Jerry Osmus? I think he was the first person that brought up, hey, how come I can't sit down and play at the Aria? I don't have a problem with people organizing their private games. I mean, even I, I understand that there are rules and that they <clears throat> they should probably be, be obeyed, the legalities in, in Vegas. But, but people want to play with certain other people. They want to have a fun time. There, there has to be some sort of uh, leniency. There has to be some sort of way for people to play poker with the people they want to play with. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. No, man, I sort of agree with that. I mean, and part of it is that I'm just, I think online poker is dying. I think live poker is slowing way down. It's going to be, if you're planning as a 20-year-old on a career in poker, you're probably making a mistake. Oh, I agree there. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't have to, like, be a big game player in Las Vegas to experience some of this, and, and neither do you. In my, one of my local casinos, there is, in fact, a private game, but... It's not like I couldn't get in if I didn't try. If I didn't say the right things and do the right things, I could easily get in. I just, you know, I don't bother. I, I don't need to do that. But to the day I feel that I need to be Jeremy Osmus, I have a feeling he can do and say the right things too. Well, he, he might have burned a few bridges lately, but yeah. Well, when you go on, when you go out and you sort of break the third wall of the culture and you start complaining, when you go on Twitter and look for pity and help. I mean, you don't solve your problems. That's just, you just compound them. So I, you know, he, he, his problem isn't that he can't get into the game, I would imagine, or for a lot of people, it's just that he doesn't know how to do it. Right. It's just an extra skill that like, and, and truly in backgammon, it was very upfront right off the bat. You had to have the skill to have the fish sit across from you. And there's, there's multiple articles written about uh, Svobodny and uh, Sinkowitz and, and all these high roller guys, mostly Svobodny, I think, of uh, high-profile, high high-roller-type guys and how they managed to find people who are willing to play against them. I mean, some of these guys are getting flown around the world to come play on a yacht, and other people aren't. Yeah, so, I mean, just it's just a life skill, you know, and, and sadly, I'm not very skilled at that part of life, but it's also interesting to see people struggle with it. It's kind of like, you know, you're smart enough to know this, right? I mean, well, I mean, this is what, why it's worth talking to people about things like this. It's, it's, it's even odd that we have to talk about social skills as skills. Like we need to go to courses to learn how to behave like human beings. You do, you do just have to be agreeable in a lot of situations and you have to know how to handle yourself in the world. And, and poker players, for whatever reason, and I think there, it's not just, you know, I don't think it's just correlation, but poker players tend not to know how to handle themselves. Let's see. 
this 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 all brings us back in a way to to what you're doing. Uh, you were playing one two cent two cent, and you said that you're a perpetual beginner. Well, what are you doing now? How you know where has all this led to in your own poker life? Um, I moved up to two cent five cent <laughs> I mean, wow. after a long hiatus. <laughs> Uh, I got to wish them online. I mean, I mean it, it sounds worse than this. I mean, I've been I've been winning online way back when I was a limit poker player. But so I came back. You can't play on stars anymore. I didn't really want to go into the off sites, so I started playing live, and I'm basically playing one three, and occasionally two five. And that's where I sort of uh, that's where our conversations ended in the past. So how is that going? What's what's one three and two five in 2019 at the Windstar and, and around uh, your area like? Well, like as an example of how the game's shrinking, there was a guy who would always come in and play the 5-10 game. And there was a 5-10 game there all through the week, and then on weekends sometimes a 10-20. And now there's never a 5-10 game during the week, and it's only occasionally on the weekends. Um, okay, that, that sounds fairly universal. Yeah. We're going through a lot of the same things in a lot of different spots. Now, now as a sort of side thing, I, there was this goofy tweet by Brad Owen that went out that I don't normally try to respond to some of these people, but oh, I saw was, you. Uh, yeah, talking about Texas not a good option. What did you, What did you think of that? Am I Am I just wrong? I mean, I've been in almost all those places except Texas, so I was sort of maybe out of line there. No, well, I think you're right. I mean, I'm in the Dallas area. Uh, Dallas had one card room, or like we'll call it gray market. You, you pay an uh, entrance fee to get in and a seat rental fee of, say, 10 bucks an hour. $15 to get in, 10 bucks an hour. Some of the prices were equivalent. Some of them were a little higher. Maybe one of them was lower down towards the Houston area. They also have uh, San Antonio and Austin. They might have El Paso and Abilene by now, Midland, something like that, but I'm not sure. But those, So basically, for sure, Houston, Austin are still going. I'm not sure about the rest. Uh, Dallas shut down. The one room... Started off where it couldn't get a game going for the first 45. It started open at 7, couldn't get a game till 7.30. Six months in, you could get five or six tables going, and sometimes one table would go till dawn. Uh, by the end of the year, this was 2017, I think, by the end of 2017 maybe, you could get uh, six or seven tables easy, sometimes two tables all through. On a weekend, you'd have 13 tables going. I mean, the place was packed. So it's so popular, and it was the only game going, and people started to notice how much money the guy's making. Windstar actually started slowing down. Mm -hmm. And so they opened up another few, and one guy put, like, he said, like, almost a quarter million dollars into his place, took way too long to open, opened up around the 10th month. We'll we'll call it, like, say, month one from where the Texas, it's called the Texas Poker Room, or Poker Rooms of Texas in northern Dallas. He opened up in a suburb a little farther north on McKinney, and it took him like three or four months to build out the spot. He was open for maybe a month, maybe three weeks, and the uh, Collin County District Attorney apparently sent him a letter of cease and desist, and he immediately shut down. Another place built 10 tables in uh, the Garland area and maybe opened for two days, got a cease and desist letter the same day the McKinney place, FTN did, and shut down. And so in Dallas, it's shut down. They just don't want to fight with the district attorney. In Austin, it's a different district attorney. In Houston, it's a different district attorney, and they just choose not to not to worry about it. 
In terms of, you know, the thing that I had an objection to in addition to the other areas being inaccurately portrayed by Mr. Owen, um, for, you know, I, as you might remember, I was in a game where the police busted down the door and, and stuck a gun in my face and put me in cuffs. <laughs> is, that a, is that a danger in Texas poker or is it because of the way they handle it? Is it just more player friendly? I wouldn't know. I kind of wonder about security in general in those places. I mean, there's a lot of money in those places. A lot of people, it's an uncapped game. I prefer the security of a Windstar. Right, right. And if I'm going to move somewhere, why would I move to a gray market area when I can move to a, a fairly lively Florida or Boston? I mean, I think Chad Power kind of illustrated the value of that concept. You know, go to wherever the poker rooms are opening up and take the easy money and then find greener pastures if you, if you can. Right, and that sort of reminds us of what we were talking about earlier about you know those private games. They don't. A lot of their motivations are the same as yours. They they want the comfort and security of the casino as well. Yeah. Yeah. And and as for Chad Power, you know he probably could have gone on doing that if he hadn't been you know so open about taking the money so easily. <laughs> he didn't Did need he to go under the. Well, he went into the Washington Post and was bragging about how successful he was. And he did, he could have instructed his players to be, you know, a little bit less transparent, crushing the, the bad rigs and, and the tourists. He didn't have to get kicked out. I didn't uh, know he got kicked out. Well, he got, yeah, he got asked to leave, from what I understand, him and his teams of good players. So the, the point being, again, it's just returning to what you were saying. It's, it's just the old, you know, sheer versus skin the sheep argument. You know, the poker culture isn't what the listeners might think it is the toughest game in the room is not the big game the toughest game in the room is the game where the best regs kind of max out their bankroll and fight for this which you saw in backgammon a lot you saw guys basically the fish would set the price high enough where the grinders couldn't get to them now they get to fight against the people who they choose sure and that's why you know things like poker after dark are so fun you get you know, giant whales and, and just basically people who need to be babysat and they've chosen poker for some reason to find their babysitters and pros are willing to sit there and sort of choke down their indignation and swallow their pride in order to take uh, some, of the, some of the money. If you had a choice between grinding it out like, um, let's say, Chris K. Or Travis, I think, was one of the guys you were talking to earlier. You know, the, the, the Vegas professional grinders. I mean, even even Fausto. You can be all on your own bankroll. You can suffer risk of ruin. You can do the Kelly criteria, whatever it is. You can you know go play 40 hours on a weekend because that's when it's – and you can do the midnight shift because that's when it's in. Or you can just become really, really popular and, and or find someone willing to put you into a game where your percentage – gives you enough. I mean, if you're in makeup, who cares? It's not like you ever have to pay it back. I mean, it's basically a free roll. If you're going to free roll, why not free roll in Bobby's room? Well, of course. I mean, that's, that is what you want to do. And for, for players like Fausto, and there's a lot of players, there's all these baby pros trying to make it. They have to create a brand and they have to be social and they have to find that guy. What's funny about the Chris story is it's not even just the $17,000 in education, which is certainly, you know, something we can you know, you can dispute that, but getting staked right away. Well, he obviously did something right. He obviously was friendly and obviously was available to someone and who wanted to see him succeed or share success. And that's what a lot of these baby pros need to do. Well, what, I mean, but that's perfect segue because I'm so curious as to your experience in this perpetual beginner 
but very serious student uh, aspect of yours. Uh, when I last worked with you, you went off to Rio. T- tell me what happened there and what happened from then on. I'll start before that. I was a member of Deuces Cracked, stopped. I was a member of Card Runners, stopped. I was a member of Poker, Red Chip Poker, stopped. And then I went to Rio. I've gotten coaching from a variety of people, stopped. Coaching with you, I go to Rio, and I'm starting to realize, you know, after all, it's only been 15 years, <laughs> that I must be the worst student in the world. I just, I would think that a guy who starts off playing 1-3 would somehow be beyond 1-3 before all this 15 years go up. But um, I like it. I mean, it's intriguing. I like the idea of GTO, the idea of balance, the idea of not having to notice what people are doing. I'm not saying that that's the best way to play, but if you play a balanced GTO-ish strategy, and I'm not saying I could, I'm just saying that if I could, it's it's a lot more about me manipulating my frequencies and my ranges, and this may be my really bad take on how to assimilate this into my game. And so I had read Ed Miller's book, the you know the one percent. You know, it really made a lot of sense. It was a a really long book for a simple idea. You know, you got to keep your frequencies in check. <laughs> you have to have some some winnowing down. You know, the funnel can't be too steep. It can't be too shallow. You know, you have to figure out what to do with your hands and, yeah. and have some kind of future to whatever you're doing. So guess what I'm interested in for the for the students and of the game out there? Like, what was that experience like? Did, did you find what you were looking for? What did it lead to you? What did it lead to? Oh, did I find what I'm looking for? Well, first of all, I have to know what I'm looking for. I mean, I feel like I'm an Aesop looking around with a lamp. You know, I just keep looking. It, it has a lot of variety. It has different learning paths now. It has um, a reasonable selection. I mean, people can go on there and see what they want. If I had to do it all over again, instead of reading books like Consuming Facts, like reading the encyclopedia, Poor Richard's Almanac, I mean, all, all you're doing in some ways, as a college student, is consuming facts and then regurgitating them as a test without really thinking about anything except you want to get through the test. And I've always been good at tests. Hmm. So I can, I can listen to somebody. I can kind of figure out what they're going to quiz me on later. Big deal. But that doesn't give you any kind of integrated knowledge as to economics, if you want to call it the broad term of game theory. You know, like when people do something, how are others going to react? You know, uh, the broad sense. In, in any kind of general sense, you have so many pieces you have to fit together. You're probably better off just trying to piece the stuff together yourself than take someone's word for it. Because if you if you jump in halfway, like say if a, a, a 10, 20 guy is trying to teach you, he's going to be leaving out so many of the basics, you're not going to get it. If the guy is a beginner, you're going to want to move past that guy. And so you need sort of, I think, you could, not need, but you could have different coaches for different levels of your career. Or... You can just kind of figure it out on your own. So you may not be in the mainstream. I mean, like, I have, I think every poker player has two choices. They can go through life, the poker life, and they can rise through, say, a funnel where it's really wide with a bunch of beginners that really aren't even trying, all the way to the top. But you're basically constrained by whatever you think is normal, perfect, good, whatever. Or you can just kind of work it out on your own. And I remember, was it Andrew Seidman said was way back when he would three bet, C bet and take it. I think that was what he said on one of the podcasts. I don't know if you remember that or not, but it was like, it was just one of those things where he was doing something that the player pool was not, and they weren't adjusting correctly. Right. 
And so you have a choice. You can sign and go, oh, that's bad. You can get exploited. Or you can say, wow, he was way ahead of his time and he managed to find an alternative path to profit. Well, what he said in Easy Game was that his most important chapter was the, I think, the game trends chapter, which should be surprising to the reader as there's so many important chapters in it. But he basically was saying, you need to stay ahead of the game. That's where your future profitability comes from. Um, and well, I guess what I'm interested in hearing about you, in addition to, you know, maybe if you want to offer your opinions on some of the different uh, things that you've done, is that you do seem to want to do it yourself, right? You are known in the back room for occasionally popping in and coming up with these very long discourses on, oh. on the spot with like a, with three different tools all sorts of analysis. I mean, it reminds me of when I was studying, you know, World War II and I was looking at battle plans for bombings. Yeah, and, way too uh, specific. <laughs> maybe. But the, the point is, you. it sounds like you have found your own personal model and you really do like doing it yourself, right? Um, yeah, up to a point. I mean, for sure. I mean, it's funny because, I mean, I really liked Alvin's approach. Alvin Lau. Mm-hmm. He's just such a quirky character. Yeah. So have you taken his coaching, Overnight Monster, etc.? No, I, I looked in on it. And the first one seemed like a pretty good advertisement, but the second video he put up was just a mess. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> now, I can't believe it because I have this impression. I see your name in various forums. Maybe you don't even know I'm there. I, I know you're out there learning, and I can't believe you haven't gone to Alvin yet. But sure, you can't do it all, right? I think Alan said a couple of things that were really cool. I think when he said was like, uh, the best way to get anything out of the solve is to treat it like a sandbox. You have to be one of those sandbox learners. Um, right. That's, that's what you're doing, right? That's you. Maybe. <laughs> if I was learning, yes. If I'm just you're, in the you're sandbox, very elu- You're very elusive. You're a very elusive character. I wouldn't uh, say elusive. I, just, I think you have to have some results before you get to be called a learner. How, how are your results? Let's get to the, the bottom of this. How's 1-3 treating you? Pretty well. Okay. I mean, it's kind of weird. It's, I mean, and you know this, I've told you this privately, but I'm not, I've never been a losing player. Right. Which is kind of, and I've also never been a hugely winning player, but I also feel like, and I'm probably like a lot of people where I feel like I'm not doing enough to win more. And so I'm feeling a little lazy because I'm an old guy. And when the old guy puts money in, he's not supposed to get paid, but they're not even trying. So they still pay me. <laughs> is there no. satisfaction from being paid at a 1-3 game? No. Okay. So what it is is that you're kind of in limbo. You're saying the games are disappearing. 5-10 isn't around. Two, yeah. If 5-10 isn't, what happens in poker pools is that if 5-10 goes away, 2-5 tends to go away a bit too. Are you are you not able to access bigger games? 2-5 is still very common. I mean, running all the time. During the week, though, it's basically four regulars that dominate one to two tables. Okay. And they're not great. The problem with Windstar is a very inbred. There's no new blood. Vegas, when I worked part-time out there, there's a lot of tourists. There's a lot of differences. There's uh, a lot of pros trying to make it. So, okay, so you're beating the 1-3 game, and you're saying 2-5. I'm beating two the 2-5 five... game. Okay. But not enough, and I and I use my bankroll for life. And uh, I go to Macau, and I have my biggest win ever. I won twelve thousand dollars. 
But sadly, it was Hong Kong dollars. But hey, it was still twelve thousand. All right. So, so let's, let's resolve this uh, this slight contradiction that you're interested in GTO. You're interested in, in having an unbeatable strategy. You and yet you're saying you want to earn more, which means you need to work outside the box a little bit. How, how are you resolving this this contradiction? I'm actually trying to take a little bit of what Alvin Lau said to heart and uh, trying to work on player populations and um, and tendencies and trying to use solvers to simplify the game down a little bit. And okay. Been looking, like for instance, I think it's a monotone flop happens about five percent of the time. Paired uh, flops happen. A, a monotone, monotone is yeah is one of the most unlikely flops. Yeah. Paired boards about fifteen percent of the time, and I thought. I remember, I forget who it was that said it, but they said those were two of the boards that they thought that the player population really misplayed, just in general. And so I've been... Well, sure. Yeah, I mean, that's, so been, that's, that's a hard flop to play, especially the monotone flop. You ha you don't have much clarity without the nut blockers or second nut blockers. You don't. A lot of players don't know how to handle their actual like merged value. Like, what do you do with two pair on a monotone board etc sure so i mean if you're looking to get more money out of those spots that's that sounds reasonable and i think more than that it's sort of like you can kind of scatter shot a whole bunch of things if you're trying to learn something or you can just really get good at something at one particular spot and then move on to the next spot and you don't want to go like maybe you don't want to necessarily understand something 100 percent. but whereas before a paired board would i probably played it just as badly as everybody else now, all of a sudden, I'm kind of thinking about in terms of, gee, maybe I could learn a little. Okay. Well, we'll talk a little bit about strategy. But to wrap up this section of you learning, uh, although it doesn't sound like you're going to go into and do it too far, what is the what was your best learning experience as a poker student? Which site? Which person? Who who made a difference? But, but you, of field? course, Chris. Oh, yeah. That doesn't sound very sincere. So we'll disregard that. Well. <laughs> But you, of course, Chris. Oh yeah, no doubt. We just see. I told you this guy's elusive. I can't nail him down. No, I don't know. It's kind of hard. I enjoyed working with you. I can't tell you why I stopped. I know. I know exactly why you stopped. You got really interested in GTO at that moment. We started looking at some solver results, and you're like, "If I'm," you told me, "If I'm going to do this right, I'm going to go to Phil Galfon's site," and that's when we said goodbye. See, I, I was expecting to get this whole story of your journey through GTO, disillusionment with it, re-engagement uh, re with it, whatever it is. I wanted to hear the story, but uh, you, you're not going to give it to us, I don't think. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure I have a story. I mean, first of all, I think one thing I've learned is it's just another tool. It's only as good as the input, only as good as the output. It fools a lot of people like any other thing that's written down or computer printout. It's like, you know, why do people pay full price for a car? Well, because it's list price and it's on the sticker. It's really kind of weird. It's like, a, I think it's a, a false profit in a lot of ways to a lot of people. It's probably misled as many people as it has helped. I think that there's some great truth in that. You know, yeah. and, the, and the sad part is you'll see people that, that kind of dive into that rabbit hole and never come out. Well, there are some personality types and, and methodologies that are that are problematic. One, one is maybe, it doesn't sound like it's actually holding you back, but there is a type of player who doesn't want to engage with the poker gaming situation until he feels he's solved all these spots. 
and can memorize all these ideas when that's when poker is also about performance and adjustments and getting in there. But that's not you. You're out there playing two five and winning. So whatever whatever's not satisfying you at the moment, I don't think that's your your issue. Uh, well, I mean, I'd, Chris, I'd probably give you a better answer if I had one. I just don't. When I say look inside yourself, it'd be the same thing. It's like, why would you take someone else's advice on a site when you can get a free two weeks or a free month? You know, go out and try it yourself. See what you get out of it. And if nothing else, just the excitement of something new sparks something. I, I kind of look at these things as almost like um, catalysts. You know, if I can get one reasonable thought out of something, it's probably worth it. It doesn't really matter what it is. Fair enough. Now, you were looking at uh, some two-tone flops, I take it, your, your very latest project. Sort of a button versus big blind situation, I take it? Oh, yeah. Well, for one thing, I'm not saying I'm right, but it doesn't seem to have seen that uh, the two-tone versus rainbow matters much. Oh, that's interesting. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I'm right, but that's one of the things I'm kind of messing with right now. I actually wound up buying a computer and putting it together over Christmas just so I could have a little more capacity on some of these trees and everything. Oh, but, wow. <laughs> uh, like, so, so one of the things people, you know, like they always talk about how it doesn't matter. The turn of the river may not matter as far as bet sizing to what happens on the flop. So if you were going to run out of solver and you had like, say, 66% on the flop, uh, and then you gave a bunch of different bet sizes with that, you know, so 10, let's say 25, 40, 66, 100, and 125 on the flop, and you were trying to investigate bet sizes. And then on the turn and river, you didn't care so much because after all, you have to fit it inside of your available RAM. It just didn't seem to matter. They would they would put a bet size, they would plug a bet size in for the turn, plug a bet size in for the river, mirror it with the other player, check the EV, and it was really, really close. So they just assumed it didn't matter. But if you go back, the EV may be the same, but if you give various bet size options on the turn and the river, and then go back and check the actual strategy, the EV may not change, but the strategy changed. So all of a sudden a player is check-raising a lot more if he has the option of different bet sizings on the turn of the river. And that was kind of interesting. I and mean, that was kind of like, wow, I would have never found that if I hadn't found it myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're, go you're going to be moving different combinations through different actions and different sizings. So if you were sort of, I guess what you were sort of saying, to, if I could simplify it if you sort of allow yourself the regular geometric growth of the pot bets you are going to miss out on some options yes we'll put it that way and so i guess more of it was if you don't really understand the way everything fits together and i admit i don't i still don't there's a there's a guy called uh bart he was called grindcore uh and he was a deuces cracked coach at one time he was talking to Bart Hansen in one of these old podcasts. And I guess maybe one of the reasons I know all these um, podcasts so well is I, I used to drive back and forth from California to Dallas all the time. So Bart was kind of getting a little frustrated with him about uh, poker tracker stats. And he goes something like, um, so what you're telling me is stats are kind of useless, whatever, but, you know, like uh, you can't really rely on anything. And, he, and, okay. and Bart was saying, that the Grindcore guy was saying, that almost, if not, Every single stat within Poker Tracker was misunderstood by people. And do you, are you familiar with uh, blue line versus red line? Sure. Okay. So he gave a, a rough example of so that people were so impressed with Grindcore because he had a rising red line. 
And he said, it's, it's, it's more important to play good poker and the lines will take care of themselves. Different styles are winning. You shouldn't always try to worry about what an individual line on a graph is. And one of his examples was value betting on the river. You, uh, you have a thin value bet. It's close. It's thin, but it's still a value bet and it's still worth it. Now, 90% of the time, you have the winning hand. And if it goes check, check, you're going to win the pot. You're in position. You're going to win the pot. And your blue line goes up you know, right. 90, 90%. But if you value bet, you're going to win the 55%. So it, because you're betting 55% of the time, he's going to fold a bunch. Your blue line gets hurt. And then the fact that he calls and wins 45% of the time, it's going to get hurt again. Right. But it's still a good bet. And right. so you, you can't really pay attention to the lines. The lines are just part of an overall picture. Yeah, I, I mean, that should make sense to everyone. I, there are strategic emphasis emphases for different players, and they're, they call themselves even sometimes like blue line or red line players. Of or course, solve for why, right? Range cap, right. What, equity capitalization, realization. Right. So, yeah, so there you see like a red line strategy, right? But of course, none of those lines players really care about what is it the green line the one where they have uh money in in their pocket and, and in their on their account yeah so i agree with you but i i do i do think that it's fair if you're trying to play a certain strategy like say if you're an upswing guy you're really not going to be a red line guy and in fact it would be a good sign that you're playing well that your red line is very constant which means you're not over bluffing and you're really just trying to get paid with the right hands and moving the right combinations forward so I agree with you, and I. Uh, but I also say that there's there's room for people to to look at that graph and to do something about what they want to do. I mean, if, if nothing else, it's just another pointer. Right. I and mean, that's the way I would treat it. Wow, this looks unusual. Why is that? And if you have a deep enough understanding of it, you'll be able to say why. But that's the same way as when you look at a PO solver solution, and uh, Yuri Pelig on his YouTube video goes. These guys look at it and they don't know why, you know, and he just very right. easily ran through and told you it was because, well, it's the king-queen offsuit combination that's in the other guy's range and it blocks XXX. Right. Now, he, he seems to me like a very, a very astute uh, poker mind. And this idea of his and other, and not everyone agrees with this because there's, there seems to be a several splits in the way people are learning and teaching solvers. But he, he emphasizes learning some of the principles of why moving combinations around might work or might not work. Yeah. And other, other groups I've noticed are really are trying to duplicate some of the frequencies of the mixed strategy, which I, I find a little bit hard. For, for one thing, um, that's an impos almost impossible mission to memorize the splits and mixes for every situation. I understand that Linus Love and Sauce seem to be able to do it, yeah. uh, but it might not be for everyone. And But the other thing is, is that you're trusting this calculator uh, to give you all this input and rather output, but you don't might not understand why it's splitting the way it does. And it's, I, you know, the, the iterations of the solver, <laughs> they end up need, if you give it multiple bet sizes, it will spread its actions over it in a, in, in a way that's going to be reach equilibrium. But it doesn't mean that if you simply took one action in a lot of spots, 
you would lose almost anything at all. So it, it's a bit like trying to make your, your life almost too hard if you're if you're the guy who's trying to to follow every um, every single uh, mix that is suggested. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, so so I'm talking on the phone to Chris, the other Chris that I know of, and he's in Germany, he's an aspiring poker, well, actually, he is a poker pro, put it that way, he's been at it for 10 years now, and he winds up being a coach at Run at Once, and it's kind of weird seeing people pass you by. I mean, I remember playing 2-4 Limit with this guy, next thing I know, he's a coach at Run at Once, on the elite section, no less, and I can understand why in a lot of ways. Like, the very first day I show him that I got this PO solver, the software, I do the Skype call, I show him my screen, I'm showing him all the different, you know, the, the green and the, and the blue or whatever it is, the orange, you know, the, the, the raise, the bet, the check, the fold. And I'm telling him, well, it's 17% of this and 16% of that and 22% of that. And he looks at me and he goes, you know, I would just look at the colors. <laughs> of course. And I was like, Stuff like that's just brilliant. It's like, that's what I mean. Like, I should be doing that. What the hell? I can't memorize 17%. How am I going to even figure that out live? Right. And he just kind of gets a general sense of, ah, I just look at the colors. Right. Because the solver is doing things that are logical. And huh. even if we can't always explain them, most of it we can. And that's sort of your job as an interpreter. Right. Uh, the, and the colors make it simple. Like, if you're looking at... your you brought up this two-tone versus a check-raise uh, scenario, and we're saying, like, well, well, what are we going to do? And we look at the continuation. Like, I'll just imagine it. Obviously, you don't, haven't given me a solve, but we're going to find. You're never going to be folding robust equity, I'd imagine. That would be insane. You're going to have to continue generally against a pot-sized check-raise check with, say, around 50% of your range, right? You're never going to fold strong draws. You're never going to fold your top pairs. You're going to find a few weaker floats, and you're going to find the merged value, the pairs that you've made, are going to be there, and the, and the air is going to fall away. And so what you should be seeing, if you don't see that, if you don't see that in the colors, that should interest you, because something's going on with this board, and the mm. interaction between one range and the other should tell you things. Also, when you see an anomaly that you can't explain, and there, there was one that came up, I remember it in TBR where I think you or another player put a solvent. All of it made sense to me, but one raise I could not figure out. And, you know, that's the kind of thing, you know, when it's a significant number of times that it's taking that raise, that might be something um, that should occupy your interest because now you've learned something that we can't simply deduce and that the, only, the, only the magical, <laughs> almost, I shouldn't say magical, that's such a bad word, but the incredibly powerful math calculating possibilities that the solver can give us. So, yeah, I think your friend Chris is, is right. Uh, you know, looking at the trends is, is so important. Well, it was, it was just kind of weird. It was like, you know, like a year later, I basically just turned off the numbers. That's one of the options you have on the software now. It's kind of like, I'm not going to bother with the numbers. I'm just saying what the general trend is. What, what gets bet more than another combo? Like, say, Ace King 6 suited getting bet more than King 7 suited significantly more to right. me is a lot more interesting than whether it was 33% or 22%. Now in your two five game, you're not playing the solver. You're playing people with very, we all have quirks and ticks. Oh, so yeah. our, 
you know, are you now, and this is something that solvers are, are very good at, are you now, you know, looking into, as you say, population tendencies? Are you making the node locks that are suggesting new actions? How, how are you using the solver to further your game and this goal of beating 2.5 even more? Well, I think that's, that's back to where Alvin Lau and simplification is starting to get to me a little bit. Not really into it yet, as far as, like, I don't think I've reached any kind of breakthrough or not, but... Is it, you talk about run at once. One thing that um, and, and upswing. You mentioned upswing with the with the balance, not the red line warrior. So Selsky did a video, and it was uh, basically assessing various CBET strategies. Okay. And he even names the upswing strategy. Oh, interesting. And he node locks for it. He shows the the general solve of the situation, and then he node locks the uh, the typical upswing guy. You know, bet the nuts. Uh, bet some of the good draws and uh, the category basically for those that don't know there's four categories that upswing recommends uh, category uh, one I guess is the nuts and strong hands category two is the draws I think I got this right uh, cat- maybe category two is the weak hands category three is the draws and category four is air yeah, and basically right it, it puts in the air with the nuts and the weak hands with the folds and mm-hmm. kind of tries to get the showdown with the weak hands and the folds Perhaps picking up some equity along the way, but mostly the nuts in the air get uh, the nuts in the draws get bet. And Solsky just he he sort of demonstrated the strategy with Peel, and then he says, "But let's pick different places. Let's go with the bad rag." And then he puts in a very normal. If you were just going to open up the thing and say, "Well, what are you going to bet on this flop?" and "What are you going to check?" and he put in a, a fairly normal. I mean, most people would say, "Yeah, it's reasonable." And then he ran the solve. And then he put in a, uh, so he got the bad reg, he's got the upswing, and then he did the tricky reg. You know, the guy who knows he's supposed to be balanced but wants to be tricky but is still up, but he's better than upswing perhaps, but he's different in a, in a different way. Mm-hmm. All three of them, he shows the PO results. And basically, Solsky's end result comment was, these are how all these strategies shape up, but they all ignore one key factor. None of them talk about whether you should even see bet this flop or not. And basically, the solver was saying you should never see bet this flop hardly. If you're betting it, you're betting it too often. I mean, if you if you are betting it, you're probably overbetting it frequency-wise. You should be betting this flop a lot less, close to zero, perhaps. You just shouldn't see bet it. And that... Solsky just has a really clear way of presenting that, and I thought it was pretty cool, you know. So, and I think for, like say now, if you were a run it once member, and you might you so you paid a hundred dollars for the month. I think that one little insight, just that one video, just that one little kernel of knowledge out of that would probably make worthwhile. Well, there we go. We finally we finally got it out of you. Yeah, there you go. What you got from Rio. Okay, good. Now <laughs> we're getting somewhere after an hour and a half. Sorry. Well, that we don't have uh, a lot of time, but did you want to did you want to go over this scenario at all or or should we save yeah. it for another day? Okay. Oh, I don't care. I mean, since you brought it up, um I guess we should explain at least the beginning of it. I, I sent yeah. Chris a, uh, a button versus big blind scenario. The button had a, what, 31% opening range, was a lot tighter than usual, but I made it live. Um, okay, yeah. We have, okay, so I'm looking at a, 414 a slight, combos. Yeah, a slightly underdeveloped button opening range, certainly fine for a live rig, yeah. especially if you're going to be opening, you know, more. Uh, if you're going to be opening to a larger size, you don't get to, you know, just... Right. So it was definitely 3x. 
It's got the 40-some percent or 30-some percent. Um, and it's got a 33 33.65% defending range in the big blind. And it has 10% of aces, kings, queens, jacks. So it has a little bit of traps, slight amount of traps. Um, yeah, I noticed that when I looked at this. This looks like a pretty well-protected range. And this guy hopefully is going to give you a little trouble. Yeah, so... You know, he's getting a price to call. So it seemed a reasonable starting point. And on the bets, uh, on the flop, I uh, I forced the out of position, the button, I forced the big line to check, and I forced the in position guy to bet 33%. On the turn, he's got a choice of two-thirds or an overbet of uh, 125%. The in position guy has a choice. And the out of position guy is basically mirrored. The only difference between the in position, the button and the big blind are that the uh, the big blind has a 33% donk size, which isn't okay. available to as a sizing to the uh, button. And half yeah, that seems good. Raises. And so when I put in a 5-4 deuce with the 5 of spades, 4 of spades board, 5-4 deuce, 2-tone, um, since the big blind has to bet, I was shocked. I mean... I was surprised. I was not expecting as high a check raise as the solver suggested. So, okay. that so got to me to thinking, you know, right. should I be check raising more? What are the player tendencies? And like, I have no answers, but at least that's where I am. I'm thinking about stuff like that. That's cool. So I guess the, the first thing we have to notice is you, all, you is the 33% C-bet. What is the percent? Are you forcing that? I didn't yes. quite hear. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah. All right. So when and when you, I ran it, it, it had yeah. like a ninety some percent anyway. So I just forced it. Right. So I would be wary of betting into this board a hundred percent, but certainly it's a reasonable simplification strategy to do that. So I just want to note that uh, you should get check raised. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the number is going to be. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to imagine that it's somewhere in the neighborhood of higher than twenty percent. Yeah, 24%. See, that's why you're the coach and I'm not. Right. So I don't, and, the, and the reason is very simple. This board does hit the BB's range fairly well. And he right. is protected, which is sweet. Um, so many people don't protect their ranges. They don't have any strap, traps. I mean, when I looked, when I when I saw the, the PO range that you gave me, I didn't see that one-tenth sliver, right? Yeah. So I thought, okay, this guy's capped at like nines or like ace-queen as his biggest ace. But a really smart BB strategy, or like any strategy from any position, will have some coverage. We just we can think about that philosophically. Well, if I show up with only weak hands in any in lots of spots, that's where I get exploited. So it's a very simple maneuver, and I think we saw, you know, speaking of Alvin, I think we saw that pluribus like to do that too. It's just logical. Yeah. Uh, my my point being is you should get check raised here. So the I guess the question. The real question for you and the listener is like, so what do I do when I'm check raised, right? Yeah, because in a live arena, no one's check raising one fourth of their hands. They're just not. Well, let's take a page from Andrew Seidman and say we're going to be that guy or that day is coming when they do. I mean, I tell oh, yeah. you, I check, I check raise these small bets all the time and my success frequency is way higher than it should be. It's not it shouldn't be that easy. Yeah. to take people off their hands, whether it's live or, you know, online. So anyway, so let's just say that that's coming. So what are some principles? What did you, what did you see in PO's response? And what can we summarize as some good principles for, for continuing versus this 20 to 25% check raise? 
Well, we'll put you on the spot since you were so good on the first part of it. What do you think? <laughs> about, what do you think about bet three bets? Lots, um, medium, or none? Well, I would imagine that the solver doesn't like them at all. But there you go. I, See, that's why you're the coach. You're down to two point two percent. And I have two different sizes, 50% and 100%. And you just almost never three bet. Okay. So I would. Or, or, I would yeah, three bet. Right. So I would disagree with the solver. I think there's lots of spots, not lots, like more, but more than two, more than 2%, where because of the nature of like on this board, so many of our opponents' <clears throat> check raises are flush draws that firing through. Um, both simplifies and gains a lot of EV. I, it's not obviously if it's not if solver says not to do it, it might not be optimal, but yeah. it's going to simplify your game and it's going to make you a more dangerous player, which I always value. But then that, let's answer why it doesn't. Well, of course it doesn't want to fire through as a three bet because it's what is a check raise? A check raise is, is a is the presentation of a polarized range, and you're incentivized in general to just call. Because they're representing hands, and the solver has hands that are ahead of you or are bluffs. And we lose EV if we lose the bluffs and contort our ranges up against only their strongest hands. But So 2%, I mean, I, I guess even even that surprises me that it's 2%, according to the solver. But I would, mm-hmm. I would definitely be in favor of uh, firing You don't use solvers through. much, right? Uh, very rarely. I don't, I mean, your instincts are really good. Maybe that's the reason you're real good at this. <laughs> well, I think... I mean, that's nice to hear, but I think that a lot of what the solver does is just logical, and we can, as we said, we can sort of piece together. And I guess where I fail, and all of us who are more instinctive, maybe classical poker players, is the little wrinkles that the solver gives us. And, you know, if you were to look at, if if you have the solve in front of you, like, there might be some hands that are calling that I wouldn't think to call, you know. And then stuff like that, I think, matters if you're trying to be that guy who's trying to squeak out another two or three big blinds at the 2-5 game. Uh, well, for sure there's calls I wouldn't make. I mean... Well, wh- what are those? Let's talk about what, what are what are the calls and what are the, the not calls, per se. Well, what are they or which ones wouldn't I make? <laughs> well, just... Uh, good point. Uh, what, are, what are the ones you wouldn't make? And then let's see if P.O. agrees. That's cool. I would be... I would be hard-pressed against a pot size. Check raise. Okay, so to set it up, there's $60 in the middle. So I guess I'm not taking rake out. Our stack size is 970 because it's a 510 game and we raise 3x. I'm forced to bet 20. He raises to 120, and I've got to call 100 more. If I call, I'm supposed to call with ace of hearts, 10 of spades, 90% of the time. Ace of hearts, 10 of, 10 of spades, spades. And there's 20%. really... No, 90. 90%. See, okay, well, they see there's there's now, an example of something that's hard to figure out. Yeah, ace of clubs, 10 of spades, 90%. Every other combination, less than 6%. And most of them, nothing. Hmm. So there's only two combos it has in there, and that's the hearts and the clubs. Now, we have diamonds and spades up on the board, so that sort of maybe makes sense. It's uh-huh. a 5-4 of spades and the deuce of diamonds. Right. Okay. So we're ahead of a lot of their, because they're going to check raise a lot of their flush draws, the hands that don't have uh, the spades and the hands that have like what we call SDV, like ace, good ace highs uh-huh. or ace, ace high with like a pair. I can't imagine folding, say like ace deuce or ace four or really any pair against this check raise uh, just because 
they just have so many uh, so many draws. So where where does so does does Peel like calling with uh, our weak ace pairs and our best aces? We are calling almost exclusively with uh, ace five, ace four, ace deuce. There's a smattering of raises in there, but really really small percentage. Yeah, they don't they don't matter probably. Yeah. Uh, basically, the biggest raises you have, and of course, mm-hmm. you know, the only total about two and a half percent, two point two percent, something like that, is a pair. Of eight. That's another thing. Okay, so you force you make the small c bet with your entire range because you finally learned how to be balanced. The guy does a pot size, uh, a pot size check raise. How many people in your population are going to three bet a pair of aces? Well, I think a surprising number will. And the reason is they won't. They don't know what else to do. Uh, so so they do it as some, desperation to get the hand. Well, over? I mean, it's desperation, or do they? I mean, we're all thinking players at some level. That's why I hate that word, like thinking player. He can see the board, even a bad rig can see that there's lots of draws available, and he and can he's ask. He's got a gut shot. And he's got a gut shot, and he's at, he, all he has to do is ask himself, like, well, why am I facing this, like, prop probably too big uh, check raise. Well, I'm seeing it because my opponent has a lot of draws. And I, you know, if I have aces or if I have a set, I think raising a set would be worse, but, you know, whatever. Aces are vulnerable. And if I call, what do I do on the turn? So I don't, I don't think the bad rigs, and maybe it's just, you know, it's, it's just overlap, you know, overlap of reasoning. But in other mm-hmm. words, I, I think you will see it sometimes. And mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think it's wrong, especially, you know, how deep are we in this scenario? Stack size 970. Right, and the so, pot size seventy or sixty. Right, so if we we're seeing this huge bet where the SPR is going to be worse than three if we call, so I don't see raising as so bad there. I mean, I I, I, I couldn't I couldn't blame him, even though I think you should simplify. I think you're right, and Alvin's right that you should simplify a lot of things. And you, if you getting if you got rid of all those three bets just to clean up your strategy, I mean, how how can you argue with that? I can see part of it. I mean, I can see a lot of regs. Three betting with aces and going, ah, if you got it, you got it. <laughs> it's a They're little the same nuts. guys that say, oh, I thought you had an ace when they call with their kings. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I, I'm not trying to, 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 to justify everyone, but I, but all I'm saying is that it will happen. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, if I'm calling, I would have trouble calling a pot size bet with the ace of hearts, ten of spades. And the and those two combinations are the only two that you really call with ace of hearts ten of spades and ace of clubs ten of spades, so okay. it can't be the ace of spades because then you're blocking him from blowing it off the hand with uh, with the nut flush draw, so, right. so you can't block that. So this is a good example of what we can take away. It's not from the solver, and because you're not folding the ace deuce either, right? Correct. Okay, you're not folding against the first check raise on the flop with much showdown value at all because you have plenty of garbage you can throw away. I, I will say you're folding the, uh, the ace deuce hearts and ace deuce clubs 72% of the time. Okay. But we could like, we could get rid of all those. We could say that's zero. Right. And we could, yeah. we could call with some more, more pairs. The point is the ACE 10 has showdown value against the kinds of hands that's being raised. It unblocks, right. Sure. The spades. The pairs that are want to call still have value against that draw. It's probably you're probably calling in this strategy with your own draws, right? Because you have draws too. 
Oh, yeah. But my, my, my point being, what can you throw away? Well, you can throw away, like, your Queen Jacks and all that stuff that doesn't even have, like, a top-end gutter or even, oh, oh, you know, like, gutter and overcards are such a good continuation. In other words, anything that does well against your opponent's range, the bottom of it, its raising range, the bluffs, and hands that can improve. Like, if you have a gutter here with, like, uh, what would be an example, like, 7-8, I don't know if Pio's going to fold that, and I don't know if I would either, especially, you know. Would yeah. you do it with clubs? Would I do it with clubs? Yep, seven, eight of clubs. Um, if, I had, if I was defending 50% of my range, I think I'd, ha- or I'd, think I'd have to, right? Yeah. See, that's, I don't, I'm not even showing you my screen. You're getting all this right. You're calling with 100% of your 8-7 uh, seven suiteds. Seven, well, six suiteds. Well, first of all, I mean, we just have to think, like, don't get confused by, like, the pot size, uh, he has a polarized range. He's representing the nuts or air. Uh, he's going to have to give up a lot on the turn. Or he'll stop. And when we drill our gutters, like the implied odds are massive, as well as our overcards being good uh, against many of these bluffs. Also just cooling him off, cooling him off when he's raising like ace three, right? And we have a hand that makes a better set. Uh, I don't think on the flop, and getting the flop right is really important to go yep. back to what you were saying. I don't yeah. think on the flop we should be giving up really easy. And maybe that's where the weakness of like a lot of live players are. Uh, if they're folding like more than fifty percent of their range here, most uh, of they just they're just losing. They're just they're making our check raises so profitable. And I think you can. I think that is look, looking at it the way you're doing now, and then just simplifying the reasons why. Well, if I have robust equity if i have fairly good showdown value if i if i'm have a hand that's beating their natural bluffs i think we call and we see another street and we play poker from there yeah but you give me a lot of credit these are your ideas i'm just nodding my head up and down yeah good idea chris (laughs) (laughs) well i mean i agree with you it's just it's hard to do in game i mean like for instance if i've got the eight six of diamonds or eight six of spades double gutter yeah sure I can see we're against a pot size check raise. I should call, put them to the test a little bit. Who knows? Maybe even I can even spike an eight and be good. Who knows? But I would still worry about, okay, most people that I play against, and again, this is not solver-based, but if most people I'm playing against are doing it with a flush draw and or air and or the nuts, a huge part of the the eight six of hearts and eight six of clubs I could hit my card and have some reverse implied outs because I'm really not chasing six outs or eight outs anymore. I'm chasing six. So that would have a tendency to make me automatically call less than probably I should. I would this say is so. like a good reminder that I'm probably supposed to be stickier. And that's kind of what I like doing with the solvers, like saying, wow, how do I get to 50% here? And Ed told us the same thing. He didn't need a solver. He said, you got to have your frequencies in line. You've got 400 and some combos that you bet every single time on the flop. You need to have some way of protecting that range, just like you said. It's just common yeah. sense. Yeah, he was at that book, which has caused so much grief to so many people because they sort of misunderstood it. It was really right on, on that. And, it, and that was the lesson, right? Yeah, I think that was the only lesson. <laughs> I mean, that was, the, well, yeah. People got hung up on the, on the 70% number, but if you, re- if you read the book, 
and you found the events chapter, he basically said, oh, by the way, 70% is just a placeholder. It doesn't matter. Yeah, and everything's an event. <laughs> right. So you once you read the book carefully, you realize, oh, that was just a stand-in for people who have no continuation ideas. Anyway, no, I think I think this is great what you're doing. I, I think the lesson I think the lesson here is getting the flop right, not giving up robust equity, not giving up against hands that beat your opponent's bluffs. And um, I guess to take it to the the next level, well, you're going to be observing what players check raise, and and they won't. Sometimes their check raising frequencies are so low. Well, that, of course, you have to make adjustments. And you shouldn't go out there in public trying to do this just to prove a point with your own money. Um, my, <laughs> my point being, of course, in some cases, you need to dial these things back. But the truth is people are check-raising you. They are bluffing you. Yeah. Um, I see it all the time, even in very small games. And the illusion that – and those stupid things that people say, like you can't bluff at low stakes or they're not bluffing, they're so wrong. Um, I agree with that. It's just, it's out there. And you just, maybe in the first 15 minutes when everyone's sort of feeling each other out, yeah, like we, we retreat. That's normal. That's normal human behavior. When, when someone's had a beer and we've played three hours and we've traded some money, their real chops start coming out. And yeah, they're going to be bluffing on this board and they should. Chris, you ought to go to Winstar. There's no such thing as 15 minutes. You play with the same people for years in a row. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not uh. ready. I'm not ready to live your life quite yet. <laughs> um, so, I, okay, I, I'll tell you what. For the listening audience, you can uh, shake your head in awe and amazement at how good Chris is. I, I, uh, I put the turn card in as the eight of hearts, and I look for what the, uh, the check raiser is supposed to do on the eight of hearts. So it's five of spades, four of spades, deuce of diamonds. The, uh, the button automatically c-bet 33%, and the big blind check raised pot for 120 so now there's $300 in the middle, and the eight of hearts comes, and Chris earlier said, well, you know, on the turn, you can shut down. And sure enough, the solver says 72% of the time you should check. So yeah, just because yeah. you check raise doesn't mean you have to continue on. Yeah, and, and I'll sort of wrap this up and connect it back to our old friends at RCP, because there was a post there uh, where someone asked a very, very good question, and it was told a very, very poor answer because they were expecting the the person calling the check raise to only have very very nutted hands okay but that's just not how to respond to a check raise that's not that's not going to get you somewhere you you've got to continue against these um, aggressive actions and it's okay even as the check raiser to give up too just because you you're the check raiser it's a, it's a myth that you have to then bet everything's about the board Everything's about range versus range stuff. And, you know, just, just relax and, and don't get blown off your hand. You can always give up later. Yeah, cool. I agree. Well, I'm saying, you know, for a guy who doesn't use a solver, you're really, you're really good at this. And I can <laughs> see why you're playing poker for a living and I'm not. Ah, uh, well, you'll keep trying. After another 15 <laughs> years, you know, it's not still not working. Talk to me then. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Thank you, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And, and by the way, thank you very much for all the help. I mean, we may not be working together anymore. It doesn't mean I don't still remember some of our conversations. Oh, geez, I don't remember them. I, I'm scared at what I said. Uh, mm. But I appreciate what you do in TBR. I love these battle plans you come up with. Put them out there every now and then. <laughs> and uh, hopefully people respond a little bit more. You know, one of the things that's, you know, just while for the close on is that people put a lot of work into their game. And, you know, if someone 
if someone puts together a whole presentation, you should probably take a look at it as your as a poker player. You've got to learn, and uh, I'm I'm grateful to you for putting those things up, and I hope you do again. Uh, for me, I do it like a vanity project. It's like, it, well, I mean, it sounds mean, but um, having an open space to do this in gives you some accountability as far as you have to. Hopefully, you take pride in it. You can do a better job, but also just the fact that you do it. It's like I probably wouldn't have gone into that detail or gone to different levels if, if it wasn't for semi-public consumption. And right. I think in some ways, I mean, I appreciate that you're saying you want people to look at it, but I got more out of it doing it than I think anybody would reading it just because – and by having that forum available, it it's almost like – I forget who it was, but it said uh, – just putting a post down on paper with the idea of quality, you know, some accountability to yourself that you're not going to just put total garbage on a piece of paper and put it out there in public automatically is a good thing. You know, it's just, it's good for you. You know, it's almost selfish to put it on that form, you know, because I get to put it out there and it's a, it's a way for me to, uh, to learn. Cool. Well, we'll close there. I want to uh, thank Steve for coming on, and uh, we'll talk to you again. Uh, thanks, Chris. See you later. And thank you for tuning in once again to the Poker Zoo. Find us at persuadio.nl or simply do a search for the Poker Zoo. And someone said, I haven't put the hotline out for several weeks, so that's because nobody has called it. But um, it's like chicken and the egg. So here you go. 410-775-6224. 410-775-6224. The virtual machine will answer. You can just simply leave a message. Really, call me. Anything. Complain about the nameless announcer at the beginning and end of the show. Maybe he's got bad hair. It could be a thing. Greatest insults. And bad hair is funny because it's on the internet. And because it's audio only. And because my hair is really not that bad. But really, if you have an interesting discussion question or a witty comment, anything, we'll be glad to put it on the show. Be the envy of all of your friends. So thanks again, and with that, we'll see you next time. 